Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition, We Do Science podcast. Uh, today, I've had to make a note here because the numbers are ranking up here, is episode 122. And I'm really happy to welcome back Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Hey, Trent. Hey, thanks for having me back. I can't believe it's been, what, four years or so. But five, five. Well, five yeah, four, four and a half years. We were just talking offline. Um, Back in episode 45, we, we had a chat about carbohydrate periodization, which is still a really, really popular podcast. Um, and the reason why I love talking to you or reading your work or listening to your, your presentations, I've heard you speak in numerous places, uh, ISENC last year, for example, when you released, um, you have that special edition you know, relating to nutrition and, and athletics, is very much, as you've just referred to offline as you you've very much got this you know one foot in research but one in practice which is obviously music to my ears because the whole point of my work and my outputs and my practice is, is all this science to practice approach um where my particular focus is sport and exercise nutrition or performance nutrition and topics that that relate to it so um that that sort of explains the the, the people that i like to have a chat with and the reason why i wanted to have this Sorry? It just means I have. It just means I have two full-time jobs, unfortunately. Yeah, well, my academic job, full-time. Yeah, the, I can appreciate that they're 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 not two independent jobs no. that that have about half-time workload each. They marry up to a slightly more than one typical job. I can imagine. Yeah. And obviously, you're super passionate about what you do. You put a lot of time into. You know, alongside that work is you're you're producing outputs like your papers. I, I know how much work is behind that, and you've you've written a lot and published a lot. Um, and obviously, like today with these podcasts, so we're all deeply appreciate that, particularly because of your insights on both sides of the, the spectrum. So the reason why I um, wanted to have this chat was I was doing some research around nutrition and endurance training. Um, and you know, one thing that constantly comes up with these things is, is there's always a lack of, um, to the consumer of information on, on these sorts of topics that there's a, there's a lack of either on purpose or not, but there's a lack of definitions or context that, that goes into topics that are discussed. So there's a tendency for people just to read this stuff and they go, Oh, I'm an endurance athlete. I'm just going to do what I read. Um, and we're, and we're going to dig into that because I think this particular topic that I wanted to get into comes from, um, you know, where, where science brought us the fact that the world is, is not flat. Okay. Um, that's relevant because science also tells us that not only do we now know that there's great deal of difference, um, on, on this earth at the, uh, altitudes that athletes will train and compete at, but there are many different impacts that, that that altitude can have on training adaptations and performance and so on. And it wasn't until I read um, a related review that you were also uh, heavily involved in, uh, and these are both in sports medicine, so I'll just refer to them now, but there was your paper on uh, uh, of August of this year, Contemporary Periodization of Altitude Training for Elite Endurance Athletes, which was a fantastic um, uh, sort of a companion of information that relates to this topic that I think is particularly useful 
for people to read in addition to the nutrition and altitude strategies to enhance adaptation, performance, and maintain health paper that we're going to start discuss today for reasons that are largely why I will often tell my own students or, or just people in general that if you want to be good at sport and exercise nutrition, you, you mustn't just focus on sport and exercise nutrition. You need to understand the other aspects of, of this, um, you know, the, the body of knowledge uh, like sports science, exercise science and biochemistry and, and uh, sociology and all the other stuff that's relevant to working with people. So let, let's, just, let's just bring this back to where I want to go with this. I, I had mentioned that I'm interested um, or have been interested in endurance, nutrition and endurance training uh, and competition. And there's this paper of yours that you've produced. Perhaps you could start this conversation off. Well, first, just in case um, not everyone knows who you are, just give us a brief background as to who you are. And then why did you, why did you decide to, or you and your team decide to put this paper out there in the first place? Yeah, sure. So um, I live in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, and I, I'm a director of performance at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. Uh, we have a network of Olympic and Paralympic training centers in Canada, and uh, I'm at the one in, in Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, we work with... Um, 22 different national sport organizations uh, because we also have a base up in Whistler. So we work with winter sport and summer sport, um, large staff, almost 70 people. Um, I primarily work with endurance sport. And so specifically with Athletics Canada, the um, Olympic and Paralympic track and field organization is my primary sport that I work with. Uh, but I help out a little bit with triathlon and mountain bike um, as well. So as you said, if you're interested in an endurance sport, uh, even if it's just from nutrition or strength and conditioning, um, given that probably 40 to, you know, 50 to 80% of elite endurance athletes will try and or routinely implement altitude, um, it's an area that you probably need to be more than aware of and well read on. Um, and so over the years, uh, prior to living here, my wife and I lived, um, for nearly six years in Switzerland, and my wife was a two-time Olympian in the 1500, and it was there in Switzerland that um, at St. Moritz, uh, multiple times per year, uh, with, with mainly the Swiss organization, that I became much more aware of the benefits and the implementation, uh, the protocols, and just the kind of tacit knowledge and nuance to altitude training. And that was very much just from a, a coach in the trenches perspective. Uh, since then, uh, Athletics Canada puts on a national altitude camp every single year in Flagstaff in April, where we have our top athletes from all over Canada uh, come into Flagstaff uh, for an altitude training camp where we have staff there. I'm the physiologist on site. And so very quickly, uh, I realized that there was a wonderful opportunity to potentially do some research with all these elite athletes coming to one spot. And it took a while. It took a while to develop the trust with the various coaches. It took a while to develop some infrastructure in Flagstaff with different labs and the university. Um, uh, all the structures that you need to pull off research. And uh, so we've started to do some various projects there. And out of that, um, I think we have five or six papers that are based in athlete cohorts at altitude. Um, of which a lot of it is sports nutrition based kind of research. Um, and we knew that the uh, timing, uh, well, actually, 
the first paper you mentioned, the first author in that is uh, Inigo Majuka. The middle author is Avish Sharma, who's from Australia that works in altitude and his PhD was in altitude. And while working on that paper, we literally worked on that paper off and on for three years. Oh, wow. And I wrote the course yeah. nutrition section. And it was just way too long to be included in this altitude training paper. So we shortened it way down. It's There's still a small bit in there. Uh, and then uh, on the side, with other collaborators, that I've mainly um, done the sports nutrition work with, I asked them, I said, listen, I have a huge framework here already, but you, you know, you're the expert on iron, like, like a peat peeling, or Luis, you're the expert on carbohydrate. Um, how about you guys come on board and just help flesh out this other paper? And those two papers serendipitously uh, were, were both published uh, within a few months of each other, and they're a nice uh, companion piece. Yeah, well, I, you know, the listeners, you just have to read these papers. Um, they are, yeah, an incredibly useful uh, addition to one's toolbox, whether you're in um, practice or research, or particularly if you want your research to have a, uh, a useful impact on, on practice. So you mentioned your, your wife, and I, I think that this is um, a really interesting thing about you um, and the opportunity that you have had on the basis of not just being a, a researcher and a practitioner and working in, you know, with all these elite athletes in different sports, but you live with an elite athlete. Now I'm not saying that you're not capable <laughs> yourself. Uh, you've had uh, some things in the past I know you've been quite good at, but, um, um, but actually living with an athlete, I think it's a particularly useful, I'm not recommending everyone has to live by the way with an elite athlete to be any good at what we do, but, um, uh, I do think it's useful because, you know, it, it, there's a propensity to come up with stuff, um, you know, theories and ideas and recommendations that just in are no way, you know, practical in the real world. Um, you know, it, it's sort of my mantra is always you can, but should you, you know, um, just just because, you know, there's a tool uh, available, it doesn't mean you should use it. And often, and I've referred to this many times in the past, when you look at research, um, in expertise and expert practice, often um, what differentiates a sort of a, a, a relatively competent person from a master, you know, someone who's a master of their arts, a true expert, is is not so much about knowing what to do, but it's actually knowing when not to do stuff. Um, you know, athletes are busy people, particularly elite athletes. There's a lot of stuff going on, some of which I want to delve into, particularly with travel and um, you know different altitudes that they train and so on. Um, but they've got a lot of stuff, uh, and they're also human beings and they got, you know, they just want to be normal people and do stuff like that. So we have to be careful about not overwhelming them with all our strategies and ideas, because as particularly as nutritionists, you know, we, we're getting pretty excited about all this sexy stuff in sports nutrition that's coming up, but it doesn't mean that we should do. And that's a really, a big thing about that paper that I really enjoyed was, is that you've looked at the evidence, which we're going to explore in a minute. Um, but you've also helped us understand why some of those things, you know, they might be relevant at sea level in elite athletes, but not necessarily at altitude and certainly not in, um, you know, uh, albeit they might be pretty serious recreational athletes, but it may not be relevant. Um, all, all back to my you can but should you approach. Um, so as we get into this, maybe we should do a few definitions here. Um, let, let's just define what, what in, in this, what do you mean by an elite uh, athlete or elite endurance events? Uh, 
And also, since we're talking about altitude, what, I mean, what does that word even mean, in, and particularly in the context of this discussion? Sure. First of all, there's no definitive de definition of the word elite in sports science. It's probably something that is one of my bugaboos or, or, or areas that I get sometimes grumpy about. Um, in my world, uh, working um, and publishing papers, when I say elite, they have an appreciable chance to make a national team and go to a world championship or an Olympic Games. That's the kind of area that I'm looking at. Or are they, you know, maybe qualify as a professional for Ironman Hawaii? Um, yeah, that word elite needs to be better defined because I'll read papers sometimes where, um, yeah, you know, 15 elite swimmers who swim 20K a week. Uh, our elite swimmers swim out 80 to 120K a week. 20K <laughs> a week is what they did when they were eight years old. Like, that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the second half of your question is just, like, what is altitude? And so, uh, I don't know if we'll get into it too much because it's a bit of a rabbit hole, but there are nuanced differences between um, natural altitude, uh, hypobaric uh, hypoxia versus simulated altitude. Uh, um, or sorry, I got that wrong. Normobaric hypoxia versus hypobaric hypoxia. And so, uh, you know, when you're in an altitude uh, chamber, an altitude tent at sea level versus continually living at altitude, um, you know, up at St. Moritz or Flagstaff. And so most of it comes down to the hypoxic stimulus that you get, because if you're at altitude, you're in it 24 seven, 168 hours a week. Uh, if you're in an altitude chamber or tent, you're lucky to accumulate 70 or 80 hours a week. So the hypoxic stimulus and stress is about half. Um, that's probably the major difference without getting, um, too much into the weeds on the difference mm -hmm. between natural and synthetic uh, hypoxia. When it comes to altitude, there's different definitions of altitude from low to moderate to high to extreme. Most of those are arbitrarily set around nice even numbers, uh, you know, one to uh, 2,000 to 3,000 meters. The fact is, and um, this has been pretty well established uh, through trial and error, first from coaches and athletes, that the vast majority of hotbeds for altitude are somewhere between 1,600 and 2,400 meters. And if you look at all the locations around the world, Flagstaff, Itania, Kenya, St. Moritz, Boulder, Colorado, um, Full Remote, um, you know, the South African um, locations are all in that kind of sweet spot uh, bandwidth. And uh, maybe three or four years ago now, Robert, uh, Chapman out of the U.S., who's a great altitude expert, has a really nice four-group design showing that, yeah, that fits right in the sweet spot. Probably 2,000 to 2,400 is, is, is the super sweet spot of altitude in um, a lot of those places that athletes and coaches have been going to for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. um, later is proven by science. Um, I'll say this repeatedly. Athletes and coaches usually have it figured out before a scientist come back and and validate what they're what they're doing so this is just another example of that so yeah and, and actually i'm going to come back to that um in a little bit but what you know what, i mean why is altitude of interest here um and i don't mean just sort of the obvious thing you know some people live at high altitude some people live at low altitude there are clearly competitions that occur in altitude but i mean what is you know what, what is the actual influence of altitude on the body as it relates to an athlete that, you know, that, that makes this something worth the attention that we're giving it. Yeah. I think most experts are probably 
break up the altitude induced adaptations into hematological or blood-based adaptations versus non-hematological or non-blood-based adaptations. Our knowledge and research on blood-based hematological adaptations is, is much further developed than the non-hematological ones. And so it does look like if you go to that 2,000, 2,400 meters of altitude for three to four weeks, um, it is pretty consistently shown. You can get about a maybe a three to 7% increase in hemoglobin or red blood cells. And uh, given um, how important red blood cells are for oxygen carrying capacity, there's a nice uh, pretty linear relationship uh, between um, hemoglobin mass and VO2 max and VO2 max obviously being an important impactor of performance. The non-hematological adaptations, and there's literally a handful of research there at, at moderate to low altitudes of 2000 meters, um, does indicate it looks like altitude might induce enhancements in running economy. Uh, there might be uh, some, um, and I think there's two studies or three total, uh, looking at muscle biopsies. So um, changes in mitochondrial biogenesis, uh, genes associated with endurance, um, as well as um, intramuscular buffering capacity. So the ability to lack, uh, tolerate lactate better as well as extracellular buffering capacity. And so there's a potential anaerobic component here of which the time course seems like it might only be a couple of weeks, not the three or four weeks that you need for red blood cells, but the buffering capacity time course might, might just be a couple of weeks. That said, it's literally a handful of two or three studies of which there's less than 20 subjects. Uh, in, in this space of non-hematological um, adaptations. And so uh, our work is we're going to try to take a big step forward, actually, this April, again in Flagstaff, hmm. looking at some of the blood buffering changes at altitude in elite athletes, because uh, you can do that non-invasively with finger pricks and capillary tools and a blood gas analyzer and um, really look at this curve of um, bicarbonate shifts that happen at altitude. Uh, what is the time course? Uh, what does it look like and how long do you have those potential benefits when you come out of altitude? Because again, literally, there's only a handful of papers that have ever done that and they're significantly underpowered. And at least two of them um, used altitude houses and, and, and people in and out of altitude, not natural altitude. So those are the various reasons why most athletes will try to implement altitude training camps. But I will also say that the vast majority of altitude training locations in the world are incredibly beautiful. They're incredibly training inspirational. And so there is also for sure a massive training camp effect that you get by just going up there and immersing yourself in four weeks in Flagstaff in April, mm. when you show up at the track, there's Mo Fair is there, like the who's who of the endurance world is there. If you show up uh, the month before the Japanese or, or the Tokyo Olympics, or if there's a world championship in, in, in Europe, they'll all then be in St. Moritz. And you can't help but be on top of your details. You can't help but being inspired and work hard in workouts when you're, when you're in these just beautiful environments and, and the who, who's who of everyone is just there. So that is a big part of it as well. And, um, uh, but there is physiology uh, uh, as well associated and consistently associated with altitude adaptations. So you, you mentioned a couple of times there, you've used phrases like uh, two or three papers, a handful of papers. I think this is worth 
getting into a bit because you know there's there's some, there's definitely some knowledge out there about um altitude um and how relevant that is to training and adaptations and some of that definitely is nutrition focused but you know it's it, it isn't just a black and white altitude or not altitude because as you've already pointed out there are different levels of altitude um and for me what I'm particularly interested in is, is the translational potential of that information as applied to, you know, my athletes who are training at specific, you know, the normal altitude that athletes will train at. Is that the same altitude that the bulk of the, you know, the, the research that's out there currently, like where's that knowledge actually, you know, being focused and therefore is that what, what the bulk of the the knowledge is currently, you know, telling, you know, how relevant is that? There's a lot of misconceptions uh, or assumptions made. If you go back and look at a lot of the altitude nutrition reviews and papers, first of all, it's an area where there's probably more reviews than primary papers. Mm. Uh, Secondly, the vast majority of our nutrition knowledge around altitude is all done at 4,303 meters of altitude, because that's the top of Pikes Peak, where the US military has a research station, uh, which is great for military and mountaineering um, altitude research. And there's been a whole host of studies. Uh, Butterfield is is a a wonderful, uh, unbelievable female physiologist that did a ton of work for the US Army up there, Uh, Gail Butterfield, a a real pioneer. And they did a lot of work on carbohydrate oxidation and, and resting metabolic rate and tracers and um, all this information changes in carbohydrate and fat oxidation, but it's at 4,300 meters. And so everyone just assumes and applies it down to 2,000 meters. And uh, I'm not saying there's not a shift in increase in carbohydrate oxidation at 2,000 meters, but it's never been shown. And even at 4,300 meters, the evidence is a bit mixed. So I've tried to, with our awesome co-authors, uh, uh, tried to write the paper really fair on what our evidence base is at 2,000 meters, uh, give or take. And the co-authors were awesome on this paper. And I just really want to highlight, like Peter Peeling is an absolute global expert in iron. Uh, Laura Garvican Lewis has just done a ton of altitude research for the AIS, including some metabolic rate work. Um, Rebecca Hall was a, um, a nutritionist with us, but from Australia and has done some iron research. We had Anna uh, uh, Koivasto out of Norway, who's done antioxidant altitude research. Uh, a PhD student I helped co-supervise, Ida Hakura, originally from Finland. We, we've done energy availability research at altitude. And then, then of course, the great um, Louise Burke is on the paper. So I just really wanted to mention that um, I, none of us do any of this stuff alone. We always have a, have yeah. a great team. Yeah, yeah. No, well, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, so... If we just come at this then, if we just start getting into this now, so if we just come at this from the perspective of, as I've mentioned um, many times on this podcast, that athletes aren't just athletes, they're also human beings. Before we start looking at their sort of, you know, performance um, sort of focused requirements, we still need to look at their their, their basic day-to-day requirements as human beings and then build upon upon that. Um, so, of course, that brings us just to the basic concept of just food energy requirements just for you know basic function or you know topics like 
energy availability, um, particularly around the topics of relative energy deficiency, which is, you know, something that's really started to explode of late. I've done quite a few podcasts on this with people like Kirsty Elliott Sale, of course, and um, uh, even with James, James Morton, we, we, we've gotten into the topic a number of times, you know, uh, how that may also apply in male athletes. Really absolutely fascinating stuff. But when you start to add in, you know, um, a few curveballs like altitude, it does change the perspective a bit and uh, from both sides of, of how we look at that information and, and what it means. Maybe you could just give us um, a little bit of an overview then of things like macronutrient needs, um, you know, energy requirements, that sort of thing, and how, how altitude you know, changes the, the, the way in which we would look at this. Yeah, I think when we look at nutrition, you start with the big rocks, you know, is the athlete eaten enough caloric intake? And then you'll go to the next rock, which is macronutrient profile of that caloric intake. When it comes to altitude and even moderate altitudes at about 2000 meters, there's probably two or three reasons, general reasons and some evidence to suggest that athletes need to be conscious to eat a little more calories and perhaps a little more carbohydrate calories um, at 2000 meters, although there's no evidence for this directly at 2000 meters. And that is because um, most athletes actually train more at altitude than they do at sea level. Um, secondly, uh, at higher altitudes, there's a pretty consistent relationship with an increase in resting metabolic rate. So at 4,000 meters, and there is one study with five subjects at 2,000 meters of altitude, which did also show a, a, a small 19% shift increase in RMR, but there is another study that showed no change. But there's an example, again, um, our knowledge of resting metabolic uh, shifts at 2,000 meters of altitude is based on nine people. Yeah. Uh, it, so we need to be careful. I, I do think there might be a small, almost a small shift in RMR that, but it's almost within the measurement variability of RMR, which is about 10%. Mm. Um, thirdly, is the relative exercise intensity at moderate altitudes that most athletes self-select is probably higher than sea level. So, so just think about that. The relative intensity that athletes self-select is higher or greater than at sea level. And this is a very important point to make about all environmental research. When you read it, you need to think carefully about absolute exercise intensity versus relative exercise intensity. And that's because if an athlete normally runs four minutes per kilometer pace at sea level, they might be at 75% VO2 max. When they go to altitude and they run four minute per kilometer pace, they're now at probably 85% VO2 max because of the hypoxia, which means they're, yes, for sure, they're increasing their requirement for carbohydrate because the intensity is higher. And at that higher relative intensity, there's a greater caloric cost of the running. However, at altitude, if we add the athlete slow down to run at the same relative intensity, so 75% VO2 max, and in this instance, instead of running four minutes per kilometer, it might be 4.30, it's about a 30 second shift for the same heart rate. In those instances, the carbohydrate oxidation is, might be the same and the caloric requirement might be the same. 
However, most athletes don't do that. They tend to run, they will slow down a little at altitude or they might have our lower power outputs on the bike at altitude. But in a lot of instances, they try to self-select to work harder. And so that combination of factors, maybe a slight increase in RMR, increased training volume, and a slightly higher relative uh, increase um, in self-selective exercise intensity means athletes need to eat a few, uh, more calories and probably need to eat a bit more carbohydrate. But there's zero evidence to support anything I just said at 2,000 meters. It's all extrapolated from higher altitudes yeah. and many, many, many altitude camps monitoring athletes and realizing Yep, their heart rates are higher here than sea level because they're they're trying to run they're trying to run too hard or or whatever it is. So, yeah. And presumably, there's I mean, there's other factors too, isn't there? Like they, you know, they 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 were at home, let's say, and now they're in a totally different environment. There's the excitement that goes with that. You've just said, you know, they they might be going for a jog, so to speak, my version of a sprint, possibly. And Mo Farah, you know, has taken over with a nice yeah. big smile. That, that brings with it certain things. Um, obviously at camp, there's a sort of a, an increased awareness of the seriousness of what's happening because the whole point in that camp is it's happening at a certain time for a certain reason. Um, also, there's less distractions, um, so on and so forth. But what about, what about the impact of time? Like, like how long, you know, how much, you know, from an acute to chronic, i.e. They, from day one to weeks, of being at camp. I mean, what perspective, what, what impact does that have on this? Yeah. So most certainly even at 2000 meters, uh, a lot of athletes when they first show up will have mild to moderate uh, altitude mountain sickness symptoms. Um, so things like sleep disruption, uh, appetite changes, usually a decrease in appetite, um, uh, things like uh, five to 10 beat higher morning heart rates, because of the increase in sympathetic nervous system activation upon arrival to altitude, um, an increase in hyperventilation. So you're breathing faster to try to compensate for a lower blood O2, and that hyperventilation changes the pH of your blood. It, it results in respiratory alkalosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so hydrogen ion goes down. There's some nutrition potential nutrition implications there. Um, sometimes GI side effects, uh, so both constipation and or diarrhea. Um, it's not massive compared to mountaineering issues but for some athletes usually in the first five or seven days they'll have um uh, mild symptoms like that increase uh, chance for dehydration uh increased chance for headaches um you just feel almost a little sluggish or not like a full-blown hangover from a big blow or a night of drinking but like a moderate night of drinking you're waking up you're feeling tired you got a little headache you're a bit dehydrated and, and those are normal symptoms in the first five, five to I seven. I have no days. idea what that could possibly be like, Trent. <laughs> yeah. Well, you come to our camp and I'll show you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, don't drink at altitude because you get a double whammy. Let's, let's just say that way. Um, and so we'll put a bunch of monitoring in place around them. We'll look at hydration. We'll, we'll look at hopefully body weight stability. That's, that's not a really good indicator of energy availability, but it's easy. Um, we'll look at some of those symptoms. Um, uh, we have a, a excuse me, a, a morning monitoring sheet, which they can log some of these symptoms and, and, and we educate them. Yeah, you're going to have a bit of this. It'll dissipate after five to seven days. If you still have a lot of sleep disruption, let's talk about it then and look at your sleep hygiene. Um, we've also found uh, repeated exposures seem to minimize that effect. Athletes' bodies um, 
and there is a, a really <laughs> neat gene paper. There seems to be a genetic memory on red blood cells on repeated exposures to altitude. And uh, I think also just your perception and expectation is, oh yeah, a couple of days, I'll be good, I'll come out of this. So uh, those are things to really think about uh, in the first week or so, and then those things settle out. And um, uh, they're much less of an issue as the altitude camp um, goes on. Uh, that said, uh, the longer the camp, because of what we just discussed, the longer the potential for an energy availability mismatch, because um, sometimes there's appetite suppression, you're training more, you're training harder, and if you don't consciously um, shift caloric intake, e even by three or 400 calories, um, on a given day, 300 calories doesn't mean anything, but 300 calories multiplied by 30 days is, is a pretty big chunk of change. So um, it's just thinking about those things. The, the reason why I was mentioning that was really, you know, we've already discussed the fact that there's very little actual research out there for us to draw upon to help inform our, our you know, decision-making as practitioners. Um, and it's just that, you know, this is not in a nice... Um, tightly controlled environment of a lab. This is out there in the real world, quotes unquote. So for you as the applied researcher, you've got no pun intended, but you've got a mountain of issues there to to get round. Um, how? Or, or we have a study that, um, unfortunately, um, some people would would view as poor. Um, but I would flip it around. <laughs> don't, and say, don't go um, off on a rant. I've heard these before. No. Yeah. <laughs> Or I would say the study has unbelievable ecological validity because this is the real world and yeah. we're measuring what actually happens. And the only intervention we did is change iron or whatever. Everything yeah. else is reliving. And, and this is the reality of, of what athletes actually face. So yeah. Um, yeah I no, I completely agree. And I, I, um, uh, a few podcasts back, I interviewed, um, Prof Graham close paper yeah, yeah. to podium, yeah. um, which we were, honored to have him do a whole lecture for for that uh, for yeah. us at our institute um only uh, right. a week ago and yeah i you know it's just it's great because we are now thanks to him and his work um which particularly helps map this out for people to read and you know learn how to determine the translational potential of of, of the research is this difference between yes there's there's good quality science there's bad quality science but there's also you know, good quality science that that amazing as it is, just isn't relevant in this particular scenario. That's why I'm I'm sort of having these these conversations because, you know, as I said, it's very easy for people just to read a paper and then go boom, I'm just going to do this, and uh, they need to think very carefully about you know the context of of all of this. So you mentioned energy availability, which is uh, fascinating. I obviously have. I've always said I've done podcasts about this and um, it's an area that I find particularly interesting because it is an area that presents the performance nutritionist with a challenge that they absolutely need to, to get a handle on from the perspective of an endurance athlete and where we're dealing with um, altitude uh, training and trying to, to, to get the most positive, you know, uh, results from all of this. Let's just delve a bit more into energy availability then and just quickly recap on what we're talking about when we, when we refer to energy availability. And you, you, you briefly mentioned a few things just now about that and how that, that could become a problem as, as they're out there for longer, but why and why is that relevant? Yeah, so energy availability is not energy balance. Energy availability is 
the amount of energy you use for exercise, so exercise energy expenditure, excuse me, the amount of energy you take in, energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure divided by fat-free mass or muscle mass. And so that equation dictates whatever energy is then left over after you've exercised and subtracted from what you've eaten is what the body has left over to optimally function, optimally adapt. Uh, I like that equation much better than the energy balance equation where you have to account for all daily living, basal metabolic rate, exercise energy expenditure, thermic effect of food, because the athlete and the coach have full control and decision-making power over how much they, they intake or the athlete does and how much they exercise. So there's higher control factor there. Yeah. Um, and it, it, although still really impressively difficult to measure in free living world, energy availability, it is really hard to measure accurately energy intake and, and exercise energy expenditure, really difficult to the point that I, I might almost discourage practitioners from, from trying to do it. it. It is so hard and so labor intensive. Uh, and it, it results in a, an enormous amount of false positives and false negatives, because if you're just off by 10% over 30 days, like your interpretation of the outcome is completely different. But the concept of what energy is available then for training adaptation, for bone health, for sex hormones, for all of these things makes really great sense because your body is going to want to survive and it's going to, it's going to shuttle that available energy to functional uh, most important processes like your brain and your heart. It's not going to worry about your bones. Mm. It's not going to want to get pregnant. It's not going to want to have high sex hormones. So in males, testosterone drops. There's, there's a reason testosterone's on the banned substance list, folks. You want, you want good testosterone, not low testosterone. And so because, again, of potential theoretic increases in RMR at altitude, because of uh, potential depression of appetite, because of uh, the potential to train more in higher intensities, you end up with a, a, a few check marks where you might enter into lower energy availability uh, consciously or unconsciously at altitude compared to sea level. One of the things that obviously you want to get at altitude um, is an increase in red blood cells. Well, that's a protein. There's protein synthesis involved in increasing hemoglobin mass. And we know uh, in low energy availability, I'm on those papers, that within five days, muscle protein synthesis can drop 20% with low energy availability. So we can imagine the turnover of, uh, turnover of red blood cells and hemoglobin uh, in those situations might also be compromised. And there are a few papers to show that the athletes that lost the most weight um, had the lowest hemoglobin mass increases at altitude. That said, uh, I published as well over four or five years and hundreds of athletes, we didn't find a relationship with changes in body mass and hemoglobin mass results. The thing to remember, and I'll, I'll finish this off with a small aside, is that we're looking at hemoglobin mass over usually just three weeks. And so energy availability only has three weeks to exert its influence on hemoglobin mass. And a red blood cell lives about 120 days. So a sub-analysis of some of our research, um, which is a throwaway line, and it shouldn't have been, we should have made a bigger deal about it, um, which I further highlighted in Graft in our Gatorade Sports Science Institute Sports Science Exchange, and that's an open access paper that just came out, is that at baseline, when we measured hemoglobin mass, so when athletes arrived at altitude, 
the amenorrheic athletes, so the ones with menstrual cycle dysfunction, had 8% lower hemoglobin mass than the eumenorrheic females. And it was about a 50-50 split. Most three-week altitude camps, as I said previously, bring up about plus three to 7% increase in hemoglobin mass. Athletes are spending thousands upon thousands of dollars to go travel to an altitude site to pay for their flight, to pay for their condo, to pay, to, 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 to get a three to 7% increase. When if you're eumenorrheic, on average, you're 8% lower. Man, the, the impact of chronic positive energy availability on hemoglobin mass and blood health is, and that's a one-off study with fifth, uh, about 32 females that needs to be repeated. Um, but we do know ferritins, there's trends for ferritins to be lower, lower in, in amenorrheic uh, females. There's, a, there's trends for uh, lower red blood cells. And, and yeah, we, we, have that, we have that information. So as a big rock to consider and focus on without getting too much into supplements and ergogenic aids and these things, that's a big one, you know, that, that energy availability. And the other really big nutrition bit is, you know, we'll probably get to it is, is the iron piece. And that's yeah. most of our paper focused on yeah, those two. Back on that. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So look, we're starting to understand what happens at altitude We're we're, we're getting an idea of uh, the impact that this has on training adaptations. You've talked uh, in detail now about energy availability. You've referred to, issues with how that can impact body mass which we might come back to if we get a chance um but what we haven't yet addressed is is i mean why you know if you live at sea level and you're going to compete at sea level why are you doing this anyway um and you, you know it might seem obvious to some people but it isn't necessarily so well understood by everyone um, and i think that's worth just quickly getting into also, there's, you know, simply just training at altitude is, you know, there's more to it than that, obviously. Um, but why, why is this something that elite athletes are doing, even if they're not necessarily training at that altitude? I mean, competing at that. Competing, yeah. Um, yeah, again, at the start of the, start of the show, I mentioned some of those hematological and non-hematological adaptations. And it's, it, there's, there's no question that those adaptations, if you're able to induce them in a healthy manner at altitude, uh, it will help with altitude performance, but it theoretically should also help with sea level performance. There's a few caveats there to be really fair to the science. Um, very few of the altitude um, training adaptation papers feature a sea level control group that went off to some other exotic sea level place to train to have the training camp effect. And so some of the effect sizes that we see from altitude are probably a combination of altitude physiology, but also that training camp effect I, I mentioned earlier. So that, that's important to recognize. Two, a lot of the altitude studies um, do a poor job at quantifying the changes in training adaptation. And in our Majuka paper, we highlight that a lot of athletes train more and train harder at altitude. Well, if they just did that at sea level, they're going to get a performance boost as well. So full stop as a recommendation, if you're doing altitude research and in our, in our nutrition papers, as best as we can, we always quantify the, um, the training adaptation or training volumes and intensities as best as we can. It's a lot of work and it's a pain in the butt, but we, we try to do it. Um, and then secondly to that, 
it's also important um, that some people say there's altitude responders and non-responders. Um, I'm a bit on the fence on that because I believe that if you support an athlete in the right way and you monitor them and control them right at altitude, um, uh, and you look at them over two or three camps, um, I have yet to find a non-responder for hemoglobin mass in some of the outputs. Uh, on a one-off camp where they maybe overdo it, they overcook it, they get sick, or they're training too hard because the relative intensities are higher. I, I've seen train wrecks. I've seen absolute train wrecks with ill-monitored athletes at altitude, for sure. Mm. And so, um, yeah, like perhaps there's a handful of athletes where altitude training isn't for them. And it's questionable once you get to 90 seconds or two minute events, whether you would use out or shorter um, events, whether you would use altitude. So you're 800 meter runner. Although from a buffering perspective, I've seen a lot of the world-class 800 meter runners do little two week camps and come out and run exceptionally as well. So yeah, I, I, I obviously study it. I'm up there with athletes. Um, I generally believe in it because I'm seeing physiological changes. I'm seeing adaptive adaptive changes that um that look very good for performance uh, and i'm seeing performance outcomes that are um within the noise massive noise of performance uh that look better than they would otherwise be um at sea level but it's it's not as black and white as some coaches um and or other physiologists might say sure uh, uh, thanks for that uh, that leads me nicely into um you know right now there's a lot of people talking about as it relates to carbohydrate um, intake, which actually you and I did get into to a certain extent four or five years ago now, um, the whole sort of train low, compete high sort of thing. And there's some sort of sexy phraseology that goes with that. Uh, that also now is appearing in the literature as it, uh, as it relates to altitude, um, you know, uh, sort of train high, compete low sort of thing. Could you just we haven't got too much time for this, but if you could just give us a quick overview of, of what I'm talking about and any relevance that that might have to, to us as performance nutritionists. And there's a few spots in the world with it, where within a 30 to 60 minute drive, you can drop way down the mountain to lower altitudes to do some training and then come straight back up the mountain to then um, be back in, uh, be, be back at altitude. And so that's the idea of uh, like train high, complete low, but it's also train high, um, and also train periodically low. Um, there is a large drop off in the speeds that you can run at altitude once you get over about four millimolar threshold. And so half marathoners and marathoners can execute sea level paces at altitude, marathon pace, for, for pretty good stretches of time. If you're a 1500 meter runner and you're going to do 400 meter repeats at your sea level goal pace of 60 seconds, it is impressively difficult to be able to execute that at altitude. And so having the option to go down the hill once or twice a week to do a very high quality, high intensity, speed specific workout for sea level uh, seems to work really well. So you come out of hypoxia for two to three hours, you come down, you smash a great workout at really high velocities, velocities that you're going to run at because then you get biomechanical imprinting, uh, sensations that are going to be similar to sea level, uh, lactates that are going to be similar to sea level, and then you come right back up to altitude and right back into hypoxia. You would do all easy training um, 
up at altitude because if the paces are a bit slower on the easy stuff, who cares? But then your very high intensity specific work, if you, if you have the option to go down, the general belief and thought um, is, yeah, if you can go down, do that. So again, like Flagstaff, you can go down into Sedona or Cottonwood to do lower altitude um, uh, training. And in uh, St. Moritz, you can uh, go down almost to sea level within a 45 minute drive Amazing. in Chiavana, Italy. And so it, 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 and it's it beautiful as well. really, yeah. it's a beautiful drive. Yeah. Um, scary, a lot of switchbacks, but um, it's a beautiful. Yeah, only if you're driving, uh, I'm pretty good on the switchbacks. I've, I've also rode that in my oil pass. It's a, I think most switchbacks per five kilometer stretch in the world almost. And um, yeah, it's just, a, it adds a really neat option to nail your training specificity while at the same time having a hypoxic stress. So that, that sort of uh, in my head leads to the obvious question then, well, okay, you, you, you can do that. Um, you know, there are obviously challenges to doing that, um, including travel and cost and so on. What about just simulating this, um, you know, with the various gadgets that exist or the chambers, you know, hyperbaric chambers, you know, hypoxia, inducing hypoxia, that sort of thing. What, from your perspective, you know, what, can you not just be doing this in the lab and you don't have to go out there? I, I, yes, obviously the real world stuff adds to it, but, but why, why not just do that? Yeah, it seems overall that the effect sizes are a bit lower with simulated altitude and primarily due to the fact that the accumulated durations of hypoxia are lower. And I think I said that at the start. If you mm -hmm. sleep in it overnight and um, you get 10 hours of sleep a night a week, you're getting 70 hours of hypoxia versus 168 hours um, uh, total in the week if you're at natural altitude minus maybe a few hours here or there if you go down for a workout so it's the overall hypoxic stress and um, Laura Garvakin along with Chris Gore Chris Gore is a legend in this field have a nice paper looking at um, hypoxic metric which is the altitude versus the number of days as a predictor of hemoglobin mass and so it's almost like a hypoxic area under the curve and you just accumulate way more hypoxic area under the curve at natural altitude than in um, synthetic or simulated altitude. Sure. And, and anyway, you, you've already pointed out the fact that when they do go out there, they do tend to train harder and they're away from their distractions. And at the elite level, the, the cost of that specifically is unlikely to be particularly relevant. So I guess that makes it a bit of a win-win. Yeah. So look, you, you, okay, right. So we've gone through a mass of information here. Um, definitely need to point everyone back to, to the two papers we've been talking about just to uh, reinforce all the, uh, the, the technical stuff that's back there. But let's just get a bit more practical. Um, you've, you know, we've established that there are some issues in terms of how this impacts the athlete in terms of energy requirements, um, energy availability. You've already teased us with some potential nutritional issues such as iron that you know might come up here and um, you, you actually start off a section in your paper quite specifically saying that unless there are clinical deficiencies or allergy intolerance indicated um, uh, dictated specific diets athletes do not have any unique or elevated vitamin mineral requirements at sea level compared to the general population and obviously we need to assume that they're taking a food first approach they're eating properly blah 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 but ultimately yep nothing really there that that really justifies or warrants any you know um crazy approach to taking a bunch of supplements but there might be um 
uh, a temptation based on what we've been discussing to go, okay, but you know, there's going to be an increased need for certain nutrients. There's an increased uh, potential stress to the body. Um, and there's a bunch of supplements we could take for that. So maybe you could just quickly give us some background about, you know, what supplements have been looked at. Um, maybe we'll, we'll start this off with, with iron being the big one. Um, and then all the other things that, you know, from my perspective, if you can, but should you, uh, and, and the reasons which you've explained well in your paper, why maybe you shouldn't would be, would be awesome. So, you know, supplements or not to supplement, where, where are you on that initially? Yeah, I would say that the only supplement with pretty strong consistent, um, evidence is iron for altitude and it's strong enough that, um, unless you have a ferritin coming in close to 200, <laughs> I would still recommend uh, an iron supplement for every single athlete that goes to altitude. And there's a whole host of papers referenced in there um, uh, showing dose responses, uh, uh, longitudinal um, uh, dose responses uh, to 200 milligrams of iron being better for hemoglobin mass and 100 milligrams of iron, elemental iron per day. And that was a Andy Govis paper that they took all the altitude research from the AAS and collapsed it together and looked at responses. Um, we've done an iron altitude paper with uh, Beck Hall, um, with Pete Peeling, looking at um, should you split your dose 100 milligrams in the morning and 100 milligrams at night, or just take 200 milligrams all at once at night. The 200 milligram single dose uh, is superior for he hemoglobin mass results than the split dose, primarily due to the effects of, of a hormone called hepcidin. Um, and so iron is really fundamental and we have a long paper in there on how to like before altitude, when to measure it, what to look for to then depending on your ferritin, how to titrate out the hemoglobin or sort of the iron doses and then to check iron again after. And, uh, certainly talking to Robert Chapman, uh, who works for USA track and field, uh, they still have a massive gap with some of their endurance athletes. So just even knowing what their iron values are heading into altitude. And a lot of them not even supplementing iron. And uh, uh, literally, you can go from having a three-week, 3% 3 increase in hemoglobin mass versus maybe a 6% increase in hemoglobin mass by getting your iron supplementation right. So that's, that is an absolute biggie must-have. Um, the next one down in terms of research is probably uh, a fair amount of work that's been done in and around um, oxidative stress, antioxidants, and hypoxia. Most of the research has been done in simulated hypoxia. Um, and so in simulated hypoxia, oxidative stress uh, paradoxically actually looks higher than in um, natural altitude, which is interesting on its own. Mm. And yes, um, you know, at, at a certain point, oxidative stress uh, um, or exercise at moderate altitudes is associated with increased oxidative stress or reactive oxygen species, ROS. And uh, this excessive overproduction of ROS can, in some instances, when it's chronically overproduced, um, uh, cause damage to lipids and proteins and DNA and, and impair cell and immune function and, and potentially delay post-exercise recovery. And so it's important uh, that we recognize that research, but it tends to be more of a chronic clinical situation because uh, in the last 
10 years, there's now been a few papers to say, oh, if we take high dose antioxidants at sea level and we decrease this reaction, reactive oxygen species in athletes because they produce it just with exercise and they produce more of it at altitude, we actually take away the signal from mitochondrial, one of the signals from mitochondrial biogenesis because ROS stimulates the muscle and the mitochondria and the genes associated with mitochondrial biogenesis, which, which is what we want in our endurance athletes. And there's been a few sea level sh studies to show an attenuation of training, endurance training adaptation with high dose single antioxidant supplementation. So high dose vitamin C every day and high dose vitamin E. And so, you know, okay, there's more reactive oxygen species at altitude should be supplement antioxidants. And um, because of those sea level studies with the mitochondria attenuation, um, uh, my, my feeling is no, not chronically. And one of our co-authors, um, Anu Kavoitstu, uh, has done two uh, studies where they look at natural antioxidant increase at altitude, so through food, yeah. not through a supplement, through food, and, and showing there's no um, inhibition or, or, or attenuation of training adaptation with food. So foods high in antioxidants, absolutely implement it every day in your life. And that, that fits with the clinical data as well. So high dose antioxidants actually increases your risk for, um, uh, risk for death. But obviously fruits and vegetables is the exact opposite. And it, it fits at altitude as well, at least right now. So that's the antioxidant supplement story. I, I, I wouldn't do that, but I would emphasize foods high in antioxidants. And then there's a whole host of uh, supplements that have been tinkered around at altitude. So beetroot juice, N-acetylcysteine, beta alanine, uh, sodium bicarbonate. And, and right now, to summarize it without getting uh, too far into rabbit holes, is the evidence is non-existent to incredibly weak for any of those things. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've highlighted potential mechanisms of why you might n not want to do that as well. So for example, um, just as one last example, when you go to altitude, you get vasoconstriction. Hypoxia causes decreases in blood flow. Uh, we know beetroot juice uh, results in nitric oxide. Nit nitric oxide allows for vasodilation and theoretic increases in blood flow. Um, but by doing that, you actually change the oxygen, potentially the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. EPO is released with more blood desaturation. HIF-1-alpha in the muscle is stimulated by more blood desaturation. So if you take beetroot juice and you cause less, de you know, you attenuate the desaturation. So your SpO2 values on your oximeter are 98% instead of 92%. You theoretically over time might actually be slowing the adaptations that you want to get uh, because you do want some blood desaturation to stimulate red blood cells and to, to stimulate um, HIF-1-alpha gene in the muscle. So, uh, again, um, the same type of relationships for beetroot um, at sea level uh, exist at altitude in that um, you do get a lowered VO2 max in recreational to sub-elite athletes. The elite athletes don't seem to show the benefits like the sub-elites. Um, they're probably uh, elite because of that and or have trained to have um, optimal nitric oxide endogenous responses and adding uh, exogenous um, beetroot doesn't further enhance it. And uh, yeah, uh, the other supplements we just don't have enough information on and, and sure. wouldn't warrant 
recommending them right now. So sure. I'll, I'll leave it there. People can read the paper. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I completely agree. Um, you, you gave some fantastic examples there of that whole sort of translational disaster from science to practice where just because studies show that, you know, antioxidants will, you know, reduce oxidative stress, blah, blah, blah. Um, that is absolutely true. But, you know, in the bigger picture of what you're trying to achieve, it has other impacts. Like you say, dampening of the signals. I've had these, uh, we've talked about this with Graham Close. That was as a PhD, if I recall correctly, was on that whole topic. Absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, yes, and there's that difference between supra-physiological levels of this stuff um you know in you know high dose supplementation versus you know real food is a very different conversation because obviously those antioxidants are really a you know impactful positively to the immune system and there's all of that too with all this you know training uh the elite level there's huge issues um for the immune system in fact i've got neil walsh coming on in um uh, in a matter of weeks to discuss this but it also reminds me of a Absolutely brilliant uh, podcast I did with Stu Phillips. He, he's been on here quite a few times. Another fantastic Canadian. Yeah, um, I've published a bunch with Stu over the years. He's, yeah, he's spot on. Yeah, well, so what we got into and what I'm referring to is we got into this, this concept of the hormone hypothesis. Now, obviously, in that conversation, it was all about, you know, is there any benefit in, you know, increasing testosterone through, say, squats and deadlifts and so on? And how does that impact muscle hypertrophy? And it's like, yeah you know those cells need to be bathed in that in that hormone all day long which is why taking exogenous steroids is so effective and not necessarily through those types of approaches and i think that that's the same sort of you know perspective we need to consider uh when we look at when we look at all of this but anyway i digress this is a massive rabbit hole i'm going down not not necessary for now so let me dial back to what i wanted to uh, just quickly recap on as a performance nutritionist you know, I'm, I'm understanding a lot from what you're saying. Um, and I feel that there's a number of areas that I have really, you know, I have some real potential impact for my, for my athlete. I can control um, issues relating to their risks for uh, relative energy deficiency, obviously nutrient quality and all that um, is one area that, that we've discussed and you've gone into great detail. And also you've highlighted from a supplemental perspective um, apart from some very specific, highly individual needs, which, you know, we've already talked about. Um, but for general, um, for the general purpose of this conversation, iron is it. So let's just come back to iron quickly. Um, you know, what, there are different scenarios. There's pre-altitude before they even go out there. There's a certain period of time that they should start taking this. You've already said testing um has some some value i'm a huge believer in 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 testing as instead of guessing so to speak uh during altitude and post altitude just so there's a bit of a practical take home from here um what what, what are the recommendations for testing and taking of of iron yeah i mean this is a review paper uh it is a review paper with a collection of uh, great international experts as i mentioned them all earlier this is not a consensus statement that's come out from the IOC. And so um, what we've tried to do um, is to create a grid that can be referenced and looked at and, and hopefully eventually become policy or consensus statements at, at, at international federations. Um, and this is a collection of the research as it stands now, as well as um, 
practical experience from all of the co-authors and myself of, of working with athletes at altitude. And so we would recommend pre-altitude four to six weeks out. Um, some consensus statements say 10 or 12 weeks out uh, getting blood work done, but um, that's so far out. There can be so many changes that happen again. So we recommend four to six weeks out uh, getting uh, pre-altitude blood work done. And it is primarily complete blood count. So you're getting your red blood cells, your hemoglobin, your MCV, your um, red cell indices. And then your iron studies, um, so serum ferritin, soluble iron, iron saturation. If possible, you might do carbon monoxide rebreathing for hemoglobin mass. But for the general folks, if they know where their ferritin is at and they know where their hemoglobin is at uh, four to six weeks prior to altitude, they're then in a good situation to know what they're going to need to do for their iron supplement. What we've said in our paper is if your ferritin's over 35, great, no problem. Um, you know, you can now proceed to the during altitude step. But if it's under 35, you should consult absolutely with your physician, uh, first and foremost. But you might consider starting already immediately four to six weeks out 100 milligrams of elemental iron per day just to get that ferritin up a little bit higher. If your truly iron deficiency is severe and a ferritin under 15, um, absolutely consult with your sports medicine physician. Um, if this is an absolute essential camp and it's right before the Olympics, uh, considerations around IV iron might be considered at that point. Um, generally speaking, and it has been shown, oral iron will work just as good at altitude as IV iron, by the way. Um, and I believe 99 times out of 100, if you're on top of your monitoring and measuring of iron, um, oral iron um, uh, suffices. We would then recommend, based on that baseline ferritin, is that in the two weeks prior uh, to altitude plus throughout the altitude duration, um, that uh, you're, you're taking uh, 100 to 200 milligrams of elemental iron per day. Um, if your ferritin is under about 130 or 150, you're probably going to be at 200 milligrams of elemental iron per day at altitude taken as a single dose. If your ferritin is over 130, um, we would uh, suggest that you check again with the medical and nutrition and physiology experts to get an individual recommendation, but you might be just fine with 50 milligrams of elemental iron per day while at altitude. I know those values sound very high, 200 milligrams of elemental iron, but the requirement of iron to make red blood cells is exceptionally high at altitude. And published studies and our studies show um, only a very small increase in ferritin pre to post altitude because most of that iron is being embedded into red blood cell production. Um, and, you know, just a small increase in ferritin at those doses. Coming out of altitude several days to a week post, you can drop your iron, um, you know, you would get your blood tested again, the same as the pre-measurements. And depending on where your ferritin is, consult with your um, physician. But at that point, you can drop it back down to probably what you were doing um, prior to altitude training and in some athletes that's no iron supplement and other athletes, it might be 50 milligrams a day or what, whatever they were doing. And so I hope that helps it does. athletes and coaches step through a bit of a matrix and a flow chart on, on, on how to go about that. Yeah, I'm gonna, I've, I've invited someone that uh, you've published with who's a world expert on this topic. Um, but without Peter. saying his name, because I, I haven't yet heard back from him, but um, hopefully we'll be doing a podcast. Oh, he'll come on. He's, he's great. He's absolutely really? spot on. 
All right, we, uh, <laughs> we collaborated with him on on our iron altitude study, and and he, you know, just remotely, I was like, hey, you know, I I know a little bit about iron, but you forgot more than I'll ever know. Do you come on to our uh, be part of us? And yeah. I, I was able to squeeze a little bit of money, um, literally two weeks before Flagstaff a few years ago, and it's like, hey, Pete, do you want to fly over for the first week of the study? He's, I'm like, I know it's two weeks from now and I know it's crazy, but come on, man, let's just do it. And he flew over and awesome. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. He was, he was great. Well, I hope I have the privilege of, of talking to him. So we'll, we'll see, see what happens. Um, okay. That, I mean, that's just amazing. Uh, I'm looking forward to listening back on our pretty significant conversation there. Um, and, uh, as I said, everyone needs to read, read those papers. So let's just, uh, super quick then, if you could just recap then on the, the key points that you want us to to get from you know this work that you've done on nutrition and altitude and strategies to enhance adaptation improve performance and and maintain health what is your slightly bigger than a tweetable summary um that you'd like to end this with yeah there's a lot of noise and distraction out there so uh focus on the biggest things that we know matter so focus on adequate energy availability which might be slightly enhanced at altitude um, focus on slightly higher hydration needs. We didn't get into that, but um, a lot of locations at altitude are in drier environments and mm. altitude on its own um, uh, uh, results in increased needs for hydration. Uh, iron is a biggie. Absolutely have an iron protocol that is, um, uh, that is dialed in and uh, don't take uh, antioxidant supplements. I don't, I don't, don't take beetroot. Uh, but is absolutely warranted to fo- uh, focus on not only at altitude, but in general, um, fruits and veggies that are high in uh, antioxidants are, are just fine and encouraged. And that would probably be my summary of the state of the address right now. Uh, other than there are just absolute massive gaps in our knowledge at 2000 meters of altitude. And I think it's table one or two in the paper yeah. where we identified 25 research questions. Um, and someone's like, Oh, you're giving away all your research ideas. I was just like, I can't do 25 in the rest of my life. Like, let's <laughs> yeah. go ahead. I don't, I'm fine. Like I, and so, well, we need it. Don't we? I, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I've discussed this with other people, you know, when you look at other areas of, of science, particularly in sort of the, the sort of biomedical sciences, you know, there's vast amounts of research out there. And yes, there's a lot of terrible science, a lot of irrelevant science, but there's a lot of it. And there's a lot of money behind some of those studies There's huge numbers of participants. We're so challenged in sports science, you know, where there, relatively speaking, isn't anything like as much money, the numbers of participants that you have, but also, you know, the, the, the difference between what we're looking at when we're looking at the, the participants we can get, i.e. college athletes, um, and the incredibly uh, rare opportunities to get elite athletes and the, you know, all the things we've discussed about the translational potential issues of of uh, why we shouldn't be applying, you know, research or, or should be very careful about applying what we learn from college athletes and applying it to an Olympic athlete, for example. Although there are one or two college athletes who might be Olympic athletes, of course, but it's uh, pretty. On, on that regard, in the four or five papers we've done at Altitude, as an example, our cutoff for women to get into the study is they have to run faster than 16 minutes in a 5K. That's how elite these studies are and yeah, i think amazing. 30% of the participants 
in our 2016 study made their representative country, country Olympic teams. And so uh, I'm really proud of that work because it's, you just can't get a cohort of athletes uh, that, because we had N equals 59 in those Hikura papers with Ida. Uh, yeah, they're- I'm, Good point, I'm Trent. I, I, yeah, and we, we, we inferred this right at the beginning, and this is like the last thing we'll mention is, just because I keep banging on about, just because you can do something, uh, doesn't mean you should do it. Everything we've been talking about now, it, it, how relevant is this to someone who's, um, you know, they've gone on holiday at altitude and they decide to go for a 5K run? Is this for them? Uh, for, for most of it, no. Um, now, at more extreme altitudes, which some people go to holiday at, the yeah. risk of altitude mountain sickness goes up appreciably. Of course. They better have a slower acclimation process there because you can get into trouble and serious medical trouble yeah. uh, for some people even at pike's peak and four thousand meters and so um generally no but your age group triathlete that's going to get ready for a big triathlon and decide oh, i'm going to use my holiday day in st moritz this is all relative to them absolutely yes they need good iron they need to think about their hydration they need to think about their energy so anyone that's going to train uh, I don't care what level you're at, at altitude would benefit from our conversation today. Absolutely. And so much, so much to learn from what we've discussed or what you've, you've told us. I've had the pleasure of hearing this first, so to speak. Um, thank you so much, Trent. As always, it's a, a pleasure to listen to you and learn from you. Um, and I will make sure that uh, everyone uh, gets to read, read, read those papers um are you uh any conferences in the near future that uh, if, 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 if any of us want to come find you and uh, meet you in person where are you going to be in the near future yeah i um <laughs> uh i periodize my uh conferences and my applied work and so we're Conference periodization into, I love yeah, it. <laughs> we're entering into the olympic year so i say no to a lot more conferences in olympic years yeah um so uh like last year i said yes to almost everything and way too much. I was at ISANC, I, I, I was at ECSS, I was at ACSM, I was at our Canadian ones. Uh, this year, I, I might be at ACSM for a few days uh, in May, yeah. but otherwise, yeah. um, I won't be at any conferences until the fall of 2020. Because you're going to be up a mountain somewhere, aren't you? I'll be up a mountain several times. Uh, I'll be in the heat and I'll be in Tokyo. Yeah. Lovely. Well, Thank you for, for everything you're doing. We learn, obviously, from, from all that firsthand work that you're doing. And um, I uh, look forward to bringing back another conversation with you, coming back to another conversation with you at some point in the future. You, you're always learning and developing, and therefore we must come back and, and learn from you. Um, I will make sure that uh, the links to things like ResearchGate and uh, Google Scholar and Twitter and all that stuff is there. I know you're pretty good at, at, at tweeting stuff, so that's also good, including your rants. You go on a few rants occasionally. Yeah, I'll have a few points on Friday night. I have way more rants. Alcohol, alcohol and altitude, that does not go. Um, um, anyway, I, uh, we've run out of time and, uh, I, of course, am Lauren Brown, look forward to bringing, uh, more episodes to you. There's loads to catch up with. And of course you can hear Trent, as I said, on episode 45, where we talk about carbohydrate periodization. He was talking about periodization even back then. So that was pretty cool. Um, and you can learn more about everything that we do at the Institute of Performance Nutrition, 
uh, where we are dedicated to trying to grow and develop uh, practice in sport and exercise nutrition. And that's at theiopn.com. Take care, everyone. And we look forward to bringing another one of these back to you soon. Let me 